Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Coming up on this week's show, the easiest Sega Saturn hack ever. The Blockbuster Video Game Championship returns. And we get memories of Atari with YouTuber Control-Alt-Reese. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books that's getting reprinted next month, if you missed out on this, don't miss it second time around, A Guide to Japanese Role-Playing Games. At over 652 pages, this is their largest, most ambitious book to date and covers all the subgenres of this incredible genre. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay, who offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service, and they have low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do stuff like 3D printing and injection moulding. And you know they're big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 346, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, our final one of September, amazingly, as the nights get a bit darker and uh, those horror video games are poised to make a comeback next month as we count down to Halloween. And of course, this podcast, every week, we take you behind the scenes on the world of classic video games and technology, bring you up to speed on all the big happenings from the world of retro over the last week, and we bring you a special guest on the show as well. I'm pleased to see that Joe Fox is joining us this week. He's uh, come out of the metaverse briefly <laughs> to do a podcast with us. I took a step into the uh, 21st century this week and bought myself a, uh, a MetaQuest 2 as a little bit of a treat because uh, I've had a lot of stuff going on and it's all been resolved. I've got a new job, etc. So uh, yeah, a little bit of celebration. And I've been, um, as, as you guys can imagine, coming into the 21st century with the height of technology, playing retro games in VR. I've been playing... Of course. Yeah, I've been playing Resident Evil 4, and uh, I need some recommendations on some other retro games to play <laughs> on the quest with my wife. <laughs> a Dactyl Nightmare is the one that you want to play. That, What's that, that was, ba- Back from the Nightmare? Da- no, Dactyl Nightmare. That was Dactyl. one of the first kind of VRs that was uh, okay. that, that came out on an old system, and they've recreated it now. Oh, um, wicked. I don't know wicked. if you can get it on that one. but I'll uh, check it out. Yeah, it's a 90s one. You'd really enjoy that. <laughs> that was on those virtuality headsets, wasn't it? You and I have played that, Ravi. Yeah. It's, it's a slightly seasick. Oh, okay. Thing. I've been <laughs> all right. You know, you know, the only kind of modern PR, uh, VR I've actually played is your PS4 one, Dan. And that mm. gave me, like, you know, motion sickness a little bit. But this one hasn't given me any motion sickness at all. Like, I don't know if it's because it's, uh, I don't know, a bit different, you know, like different technology or because you're not tethered and, you know, you can kind of move about a bit. But. I've not had any motion sickness from it. I've been playing it too much. I played it before I went to bed the other night, and that was a really big mistake. <laughs> Lying there, like just, just don't don't fall asleep in a virtual reality headset. That's my advice to you. Having done that once in <laughs> VR Doom, and then woken up to the shock of my life. Oh my days! So, uh, I'll try. I'll see if Doom's on there. VR Doom. That'd be interesting. But yeah, give me a, give me uh, listeners. Give me your retro game 
recommendations for uh, Meta Quest 2. <laughs> See what it's like. <laughs> well, you know, virtual reality's been around a long time. Mm. Of course, you know, we, we talked about the virtual reality headsets there that I remember playing in the arcades back in the 90s. And actually, I guess this week, we're going to be talking a bit about VR on um, a home system. Because did you know, and I'm sure you guys did, that actually there was going to be a home virtual reality headset released by Atari back in 1994 on the Atari Jaguar. Yeah, I, I know about this because I saw one of the prototypes in the uh, Leicester Retro Computer Museum. And um, this week's guest, he, we, we do chat about the uh, Atari VR, but also we chat about like a lot of kind of Atari prototypes as well. So uh, there's a really kind of interesting interview because I... You know, there's a lot of stuff about the console side of Atari, the gaming side, but we also get into the computing side, the difference between divisions as well as like machines like the Atari Panther. Have you ever heard of the Panther, Joe? No, I've I've not heard of the Panther at all. I'm I'm completely aware of the, you know, the Jaguar VR headset that was never to come and I knew, you know, that we'd seen it and stuff like that. But um, yeah, no, never, never heard of the Panther. Was was it the follow-up? It, it was kind of the unreleased uh, machine before the Jaguar. Oh, before uh, that okay. was that was meant to come out, and we also talk about the Atari Sparrow, which oh, wow. was the the, <laughs> yeah. the prototype of the Atari Falcon as well, which is really interesting. And the Jaguar two that never made it to market. So, I mean, it was a really interesting company. I mean, obviously, Atari. I think we've been talking recently quite a bit about Atari fifty. You know, mm. celebrating their 50th anniversary this year, but a company that had been through so many changes and so many different directions as well. And our guest this week is an incredible YouTuber, Reese from the channel Control Alt Reese. And not only does he make these really in-depth videos talking about the history of Atari computers and consoles, he runs an amazing website as well where he's got a really load of in-depth knowledge and research about unreleased Atari prototypes like the Panther. So he's, he's a bit of an expert on all this as well, and, and a huge Atari fan as well. So it's, um, you know, someone like me who loves the Atari Jaguar, I could have talked to him all night about the Jag. And, uh, you know, I think if, if you boys let me, I'll probably have a, a Jaguar section on the show every week. But unfortunately... Uh, <laughs> the Jaguar hour. I think, uh, <laughs> there's an idea. I could do my own spin-off with Reese. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting chat. And actually, he's uh, he's been making a bit of a move into covering solar panels and stuff recently as well. Because he's, he's had like over half a million views on his most recent video all about solar panels. So we kind of talked to him about how he maybe, you know, is going to funnel some of those viewers into the uh, the world of Atari, maybe get some new Atari Jaguar fans that way. So he's a really interesting guest. And he's been a big part of our community as well since uh, we started the podcast. He's a regular listener. So really excited for this one. Reese from Control Art Reese is going to be our special guest in around 25 minutes from now. But of course, before that, before we bring you a guest on the show each week, we like to bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro and some big headlines from over the last seven days, including... Something I had to do a bit of a double take at on Enemy's website. I thought, what is this, a news article from 1995? But apparently not. The Blockbuster Video Game Championship is coming up soon. I absolutely love this. So it was announced earlier this week that the Blockbuster World Video Game Championship uh, will be returning on the 14th to the 16th of October this year at Portland Retro Gaming Expo. Um, So in Portland, America. Um, this is going to be brought to us by Double Jump Events in you know partnership uh, with Blockbuster, which I didn't realise was still kind of like an entity. I knew there was the one Blockbuster left. Which, That's it. Yeah, yeah. That is the entity. That is the entity. So, Brilliant. Um, well, what what they've done is they've they've started kind of 
doing like Brockbuster uh, t-shirts and stuff like that. And they're really kind of like milking the brand. Mm. I, don't you remember they did an Airbnb where yeah. Yeah, you could actually stay? I think we covered that last time in yeah. a kind of retro themed Blockbuster Airbnb yeah. in uh, Bend, Oregon. That's, yeah, that's I was, was going to say it's yeah. in it's in Oregon, isn't it? The last one. So, but the championship is in Portland. Um, my geography is terrible, especially with states and stuff in America. So I don't know if they're anywhere near each other. But what I do love about this is it is retro games. So it's games from the nineties. So you'd be happy to know, Dan, that there is two rounds, and the first round is a elimination on Saturn Bomberman. Um, so mm-hmm. people have got to play through Saturn Bomberman, and if you make it through to the second round. Um, it's a a high score round on down four OG for the Atari Jaguar, and the top three scores uh. um, will go on to receive the prizes. The prizes being top score, obviously you're the Blockbuster Video Game Championship uh, winner, world champion, but you also win a thousand dollars to spend in the uh, the shopping hall if you come first, five hundred dollars for the second place, and two hundred and fifty for third place. But what I absolutely love about it, and as Ravi says, kind of milking it. Um, is they are going to set up an actual blockbuster store, a recreation of it at the expo that you can like walk around and stuff and, you know, look at videos and stuff like that. And as Ravi says, buy t-shirts and you can also sign up and get your blockbuster card and you can also meet the manager of the last one. Um, She'll be there making an appearance, which I love. And you can ask her questions about blockbuster and stuff like that. But I just think it's a bit of fun really, isn't it? It's a genius move. Like just just for advertising wise, mm. you know, we're talking about it. Everyone will be talking about it in the retro games world, and to have that link and connection with Blockbuster because Blockbuster is iconic. And yeah. uh, I do remember going there and actually like renting games and stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, I used. To- I didn't even know about this uh, championship, but uh, now it seems like it's a thing and 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 kind of bringing it back, which is uh, really nice and reminiscent. I I watched. Uh, one of my favourite films, Notting Hill, with Hugh Grant the other day, and yeah. uh, he uses you do his block- a Yeah, he uses his blockbuster uh, card to get into a press event. And I thought that's, nice. <laughs> that's, a, that's a memory. Blockbuster. I thought you were going to say like I watched The Wizard, you know, with like the Nintendo World Championship. No, Notting Hill rom coms. Yeah, that's my stuff. You know, weird. I found my um, blockbuster membership card in an old wallet. A mm. couple of months ago, so I, I've still got mine. So I don't think it's moved anywhere. I didn't realize they went bankrupt in 2010. That made me feel so old that it was 12 yeah, years I, ago. I thought it was like 2015 or something. Yeah, like, I, 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 I knew it was a while ago, but I didn't. I thought like mm. the same as you, like 2015, 2016, but no, 2010, which just made me feel old because me and my wife used to still rent DVDs and games from Blockbuster when we first started going out, and you're just like, geez. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, there is obviously this last blockbuster in the world like you mentioned in bend oregon and you know adam korolik one of my favorite youtubers he also does a lot of stuff with them you know he's done videos there as well mm. and i think he's going to be at this event with them um, i've seen it seen him posting it on his facebook but I, I did wonder i thought well how long is that going to be around for is, is there still a business for them to rent dvds and blu-rays in that market but obviously it looks like they're doing the sensible thing now they're trading on that nostalgia yeah they're doing merchandise and they're attending expos like this which i imagine is probably what brings in the money and that yeah. is actually completely the right thing to do, isn't it? To keep the brand going. Yeah. The main question is, Dan, do you think they will franchise? Do you think they'll let us open a Blockbuster UK and become part of their thing? <laughs> <And> re- <laughs> reopen the uh, Blockbuster Nothing network. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, we were talking about that shop that's opened in Derby, weren't we? That, um, yeah, yeah, video Retro store video, there, yeah. Video store, yeah. If you so, did I mean, it like is, a, a Planet Hollywood kind of cafe or restaurant, that would be really interesting with Blockbuster. <laughs> and you ate off uh, old video cassettes. You got your food in, <laughs> in the cases. <laughs> what you got? I've got Return of the Jedi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't forget to rewind it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are still lots of empty blockbusters around. I mean, occasionally I'll drive through a town that I haven't been through for a while and I'll see one all boarded up. And it's always a bit of a tragic sight. I mean, I see them, you know, Toys R Us stores as well. And it, there is always something a little bit sad about it, isn't it? The memories mm. of, uh, even the, the, the smell of blockbuster was a big part of it for me. Yeah. Going there on a Friday night, the smell of popcorn when you walk in and picking up a two litre bottle of Coke and getting some fresh popcorn with a videotape. It's like, that is embedded in my nostalgia muscle. Yeah, honestly, one of my early childhood memories of going there renting Mega Drive games for 99p and then as I got a bit older renting PlayStation games and going home and copying them <laughs> burning them on a CD <laughs> it's your fault they're not around anymore it's mine my brother's fault my cousin's fault but no I, I do I do miss it you know you saying now going going in you know getting your overpriced popcorn and bottle of coke and stuff like that I'd love to go do that right now and I think there's probably a lot of people who want to do that, you know, have got mm. memories of it, which is, you know, obviously what they're going to be trading on. So, yeah, I think fair play to them. It's definitely a good move. So if you want to uh, take part in that, it's only a couple of weeks away. Uh, get that proper 90s blockbuster experience. I'll uh, put the details to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, I must apologise if I uh, sound a little bit underprepared this week. Um, I have been trying to tear myself away from Return to Monkey Island, <laughs> which, of course, is uh, the new Ron Gilbert Monkey Island game that came out last week. Um, unfortunately... I was in Barcelona when that game came out on holiday. It was our second day there. I did bring my Switch away with me, thinking, right, I'm going to get a bit of game time in. I thought, well, when the wife's in the shower, you know, it takes her an hour to get ready for a night out. I thought, I'll have a couple of games on it, at least an hour or two on it. Um, unfortunately, it took about three days to download on the hotel Wi-Fi. So I had been catching up over the weekend. I think I was up till about five o'clock in the morning playing it on Saturday nice. night. Absolutely loving it. And, uh, you know, no spoilers or anything, but if you love those first two Monkey Island games, I'm sure that you've already been playing Return to Monkey Island. But it looks like this might have actually kickstarted a bit of a, um, a Lucasfilm Games revival. Mm. And this is quite interesting. Um, a few tweets that have been doing the rounds over the last couple of weeks from Craig Derrick, who is a Lucasfilm or LucasArts alumni. And he's actually dropped a couple of hints that maybe there could be a follow-up or a reboot, or some kind of return of a earlier Lucasfilm game, Maniac Mansion might be coming back. Now, this is all a bit cryptic, isn't it? Yeah, so this, like you say, it started a few weeks ago. So on the 24th of August, he tweeted, I know that I must go back to the mansion in capital letters. And, mm. you know, it didn't pick up as much traction as his more recent one that was this week on the 20th of September. Um, where he's congratulating, you know, Ron and Dave, you know, and all the developers and stuff on the, you know, the new Monkey Island and, you know, he loves it, etc. And, you know, he's discussed it and stuff like that. But then he kind of signs off the tweet with another tweet. I'm sure uh, more will be said throughout the weeks and months ahead. But for now, I'll be standing by when it's time to go back to the mansion. And uh, this mm. one's picked up a lot more traction than the previous yeah. one. So it kind of begs that question, is it just a case of he's saying, I'm here waiting, I'm waiting for the phone call, guys. Give me the call and I'm there for Maniac Mansion. Or is he saying Maniac Mansion's coming and we're working on it? 
I, I think it's probably coming and working on it because that mm. is such a iconic title. Like, yeah. you know, it's the first real use of the scum engine and uh, without that engine, you know, a lot of these uh, point and click adventures wouldn't have worked in the same way. And, you know, Lucasfilm games really, really kind of embrace the scum engine. And this was one of those early graphical adventure games that was just so groundbreaking with like, you know, cutscenes and... Uh, amazing puzzles and just ram packed full of humor. And we had a uh, David Fox on and he was a, uh, you know, integral to this game, but he also worked on a Thimbleweed Park as well, which was a, a kind of recent point and click that came out. And, um, you know, I think this is one of the point and clicks that's always mentioned. And, uh, uh, you know, Lucas film games, a lot of them have their roots in this as well. And it came out for so many systems and, uh, came out in 1987 as well so oh wow i i think you know this this is like the kind of godfather of all of those games so uh it'd be really good to see this arrive and uh you know get lots of people to experience it again and like bring it to new audiences that's why i think this monkey island uh new one is so good because there's going to be kids picking this up nowadays and kind of getting involved and getting into that world and then wanting to know about the previous titles as well and I think it's great because obviously we had the the HD remasters of Monkey Island One and Two, which are a great my favourite way to play those games now. Um, even though I love the old graphics and everything, but just having the talking and you know having that modern experience with that great story. And we had stuff like the, there was the Day of the Tentacle, yeah, remaster that happened a couple of years ago too. So it does kind of feel like the the getting round to doing remasters of a lot of these games. And like you said, Ravi, that was kind of where it all started. You know, Maniac Mansion that was paved the way for games like Monkey Island. And I love a lot of those old Lucasfilm adventure games. I mean, I'd love to see like a new version of Loom, for example. Oh, I think that, that could be an incredible game wonderful. on modern hardware. Just such a good experience. And then you had The Dig, that was obviously meant to be a, a Steven Spielberg movie, but was too ambitious, wasn't it, to be made into a film, so they made it into a, a CD-ROM adventure. Imagine what they could do with modern hardware today. So I think there's definitely scope to bring these stories and experiences onto modern hardware and it feels like a bit of a no-brainer they've already got a ready-made audience who'd lap it up yeah totally and you you're right you've got that old point and click and nostalgic audience and then you've got this new one as well and there's also stuff like full throttle which was just absolutely amazing you know each one of them has their own kind of identity and i and i guess that's because you know lucas arts uh, games were so connected to that film world as well yeah cinematic of course yeah got that cinematic style and like you know you've got the tons of tons of star wars games as well that that came out that they could uh easily bring back and uh you know get get people into that alongside uh, the star wars films and stuff i'm not sure about the rights maybe they're with disney i i, I wasn't sure i even thought that um uh, monkey island was with disney as well and it was uh, but they got uh, it back. maniac mansion as well was with disney so maybe they've yeah. done a deal where they've got like a lot, a lot of them in a package back or something. It does sound like that, yeah. Because I know Ron was trying to get the rights to make a new game from Disney for about a decade, and obviously it's finally happened recently. So it does sound like maybe some behind-the-scenes kind of deals happened. Because they weren't doing anything with these old IPs. Yeah, like sense, um, you know, I, I just read uh, uh, in twenty seventeen, Disney um, actually released uh, Maniac Mansion on a kind of scum VM virtual machine. Uh, uh, to some digital storefronts, but that's just like, you know. On GOG, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not um, kind of what we're expecting 
if if we're going to see one. And this is kind of a dream come true for point and click fans, really having all these uh, old old ones revisited as well. You know what I'm thinking though. You know, you were talking about the the Oculus Quest before. Oh, I'd love to play Monkey Island in VR. But yeah. just pointing at things. <laughs> <laughs> just keep picking the same stuff up. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I can't figure it out. Going around the house picking the dog up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very exciting. So, I mean, I, I'm a point and click fan. I have been. It's always been one of my favourite genres. And obviously, we did that episode, um, the Why Jedi Games one recently. There's a big revival going on right now. You know, I'm hyped for the new Simon the Sorcerer game, too. So, uh, the more of these, the better, I think. So, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and uh, bring you up to speed on any news that we hear. Now, a system that um, I know you're a big fan of, Joe, and uh, I'm looking over. Actually, I've got my Sega Saturn set up again recently. It's just waiting on the side there to have a little gaming session on maybe this weekend. Um, the Saturn, obviously, a system that has got a rather exotic library. There mm. are a lot of titles that only came out in Japan, for example, um, that are very expensive and very hard to get hold of. And I think out of all of the systems, it is probably one where it does make a lot of sense to hack it, you know, mod that system so you can play these games without owning these expensive originals. But it's always been a system that, I mean, admittedly, it had very hardcore copy protection that was only kind of broken in the last couple of years, actually. Um, but really, before that, you needed to put in a physical mod chip. And I've got yeah. to say, it's not that difficult to do, because I've done it on mine. It's literally a couple of wires to put a mod chip in there, but it does mean getting your soldering iron out, and obviously things can go wrong. But now it seems like there are, there are increasingly easy ways to hack your Sega Saturn. This one sounds like it could be the easiest one yet. Yeah. Um, this is this is kind of SD loader, and... Um Previously, you're right, I, w- I was looking at stuff. Uh, there was um, Dr. Abrasive, and I think he did um, one which was that we covered through the VCD port, which was the uh, video CD one, as a mm. way to kind of crack it. That's but this round looks the back, like, isn't it? Like with the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's round the back, and it seemed that that had faster access as well, but this seems to be a replacement for the ODEs, which are, the kind of, you know, where you're taking the drive out and you're putting an SD card in there. So this uh, seems like a, a cheaper solution. What is it, Joe? Well, I was hoping you'd tell me a little bit more about it, but just kind of on that o- <laughs> ODE, yeah, it's pretty much, like you say, a lot of the mods, you know, you have to kind of like solder them or like you say, take out the actual disk drive so that you then have the SD card in there instead. And obviously that means you can't play any of the physical media you know, if you have got any Saturn games on there. But as you say, I'm I'm not too sure how this works. It, it's kind of mind-blowing, to be fair. Um, I'm assuming there is some soldering in there from the video. It's, you know, they've taken it apart. Yeah. But you essentially, you're... I can only describe it with as being as a podcast for, you know, layman terms, somebody like myself. You essentially plug the SD loader into the Player 2 port for the controller and you're loading the games off an SD card, which is essentially like a memory. It looks like a memory card going into yeah. the second controller port. It's beyond me how that's working because of it. As Ravi says, it, it's quick and it's working well. And um, this was submitted by uh, one of our big supporters, Gareth. And he was telling us about it on the um, the hangout last Sunday. And it was blowing my mind. I was like, I've, I've got, I mean, he should be sat here right now. I've got no idea how this works. So so these ODEs are quite expensive, basically. Yeah. Uh, these kind of optical disc replacements, that's what they mm. are. So, so yeah. you take the whole disc drive out and then you replace that. This method is is a bit more kind of hacky. 
And okay. um, what it is is um, you have your Pseudo Saturn Kai, which is basically um, an action replay cart that has exploits on it um, right. that that can basically load up, um, you know, backups and stuff like that. Um, that cart required, you know, a bit of modification and stuff, but now you can do it off SD cards. So amazingly, they found that if you get this little cheap SD card reader, you can actually take some of the wires out of the Saturn controller port and boot ISOs from the SD card via the controller port, which I just think is mental, onto the um, uh, using the pseudo Saturn and then actually run backups off that little SD card. So you don't need this expensive replacement. You just use this like little cheap SD card and this cable. So hopefully they're going to be able to create a like little product that is just this kind of cable SD card in the Player 2 port. You've got your pseudo Saturn on top of that as well. And then you've got your ultimate solution for kind of loading them. I do have a few worries with this, though which is the transfer rate. So um, I used to have one of these solutions that was in the back of a Dreamcast. Mm. And, um, you know, they, they created these and there were lots of Chinese versions of them that came out. Uh, it's very cheap. You could put it in the back of your Dreamcast and you could have a SD card on there. The problem was that the, the transfer speed was not fast enough to um, play the music at full speed, some of the right. video scenes at full speed. And they ended up creating a load of rips that didn't have the music on it and just had the sound effects and stuff. And it kind yeah. of ruined the gaming experience. Um, I'm not sure sending data down these uh, cables is is going to be uh, that fast. But then I guess with controllers, it's got to be fast to react. I'm just uh, not sure they'll be able to send that much down there. But I, I could be proven wrong. I mean, there's only a short demo at the moment and... It, it is on Twitter where they show the Sega Saturn SD loader. Um, weirdly, on a on that portable Sega Saturn that I think we've talked about in the past, which actually, as a demo, I don't think it looks as impressive as doing it on actual hardware. Yeah, because you just look at look at that and you think, oh, how modded is that system? But really, yeah, you, you put an SD card into this device. You need the um, pseudo Saturn Kai cartridge in there, but then yeah, you, you plug it into to port two and you get a list of CD image files that you can then load on there. And the video that we've got so far is only about a minute and a half long. Yeah. So we don't really get to see anything beyond him just launching a game and showing the menu. So it is work in progress at the moment. The good thing about this is a lot of it's kind of open source, the the technology behind all this. So you're right, it could mean that we get a very kind of cheap hack. And people can make these, you know, and sell them on eBay for like £10 or whatever. Yeah, um, which could be a really simple way to get the full Sega Saturn library on a little portable, essentially a USB key. Like looking at this, Mode is one of the um, replacements uh, uh, Terror from Terror Onion, and that's uh, over 180 euros. Yeah, uh, for the for the, for the ODE. But then you can get one of these pseudo Kai carts for like 40, 50 quid off eBay, and then hopefully a couple of quid for this little adapter. And you know. You, you, you'll be going for like about 50 or 60 quid compared to, you know, whatever price that is and import duty and all of this kind of stuff as well. So hopefully it'll be a, 
a good little solution. I'm just kind of amazed that it's working through the controller port. I never thought of that. And mm. maybe if they develop this uh, VCD kind of um, way of loading it, you could might be able to get a custom VCD card instead of the uh, pseudo Saturn and then, you know, have that in the back and then have this SD card and it might even make it cheaper, you know. The Saturn is such weird hardware though. I love the fact that you can even do stuff like this on it. So uh, it's early days on this at the moment, but I'll uh, put that link to the article and the video. And of course, the rest of the stories, you'll find them all in the podcast app show notes or at theretrohour.com. Now, more new stories to talk about, including a brand new operating system for the Commodore 64, a new commercial OS that has just been launched, and an incredible Super Mario Maker 2 level set that we need to talk about in a minute before we do that though of course we do have a little patron that we run just if you want to throw a couple of dollars couple of euros couple of quid into the pot to help us keep the lights on and make sure that we can bring this podcast out to you every single week if you'd like to contribute to that i mean we have loads of different tiers as well but everyone that backs us on patreon will be welcome to of course the patrons hangout but now october starts tomorrow that does mean there is another one coming up at the end of the month. Um, that'll be our Halloween hangout. That's always a fun one to do. And we talk about so many different things on the patrons hangout. The most recent one was quite an interesting one, wasn't it? It was quite varied topics discussed on that. Yeah, we, we I'm not too sure how. Well, I know how it happened, but we, we ended up talking about people's phobias. And then we got into a great mm. big discussion about the difference between an ostrich and an emu. Um, and that that's how we started this week's dis- this month's discussion. <laughs> that usually happens about an hour and a half, two hours into it after we've all shown off everybody's tech. But it started that way this time. And then we brought it back into all the retro tech and the retro films. Um, what did we end up talking? We ended up... Uh, I, I bought a colouring book. Yeah, you ended up now, buying... This is because uh, Ma- Matthew, Sam Coupe, that's, that's what Sam, we were yeah. talking yeah. about, yeah. We were talking about the Sam Coupe, this really weird, exotic uh, Welsh um, home computer that came out back in the late 80s, and how the the logo, the branding, and the mascot, it was a little like robot, is now used on a series of children's colouring books that have just been re-released by somebody who owns the trademarks. And they're available on Amazon. So I got one delivered yesterday. My wife opened the parcel. She goes, why have you ordered a kid's colouring book, <laughs> you weirdo? You're the... To colour it in. <laughs> yeah, of well, course. Well, that's, the that's the kind of stuff that I love about, um, you know, our patron. We, we've got such a nice community on there. And if yeah. if you back us, you know, you can uh, join the community on Discord as well. You get some extra content on the episodes and you get your own personal custom RSS feed, which you can load into your apps. And then you get the After Hours podcast, which is a whole other podcast that we do we've recently recorded one and that was about light gun games and shooting games and there's some really good kind of memories about those uh gun games back in the days as well so you get a lot of extra content for your money yeah so if you'd like to back us on patreon it's dead straightforward all the details are at the retrohour.com and of course for joining our patreon community you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and i'll let you two guys welcome our two latest patrons who've made it into the hall of fame hall of fame thank you richard baker and a massive thank you to retro passion limited We've both backed us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join our patrons community, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Right, our special guest, 
Reese from Control Alt Reese, Memories of Atari, coming up in just a minute. I must admit, this is not something I expected to see in 2022. A brand new commercial operating system for a computer that's just celebrated its 40th birthday. T- Have you heard about this, Ravi? I'll tell you C64 what. C64 OS. I've tried, like, I'm an Amiga guy, right? And I've tried to go back to the C64, and it's it's hard. <laughs> Putting the commands in, kind of um, having that uh, interface is really confusing for me, and uh, I, I am an OS guy. So the fact that there's an OS for the C64 really makes me think, oh, wow. And looking at some of the features of this, this looks like a well-thought-out OS. You know, um, it's, it's it's really impressive to actually uh, come out on this on this machine. And uh, that's one thing I've always struggled with, going back to the uh, older kind of command line stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, the Commodore 64, you turn it on, you drop into basic. And yeah. the way you did it back in the day. And I'm was, just you know, like load, comma, eight, comma, yeah. all of that stuff. You know, you have to really learn that. Yeah. Yeah. There's not even dedicated disk drive commands on the Commodore 64. You know, you have to do, yeah, the comma, eight, comma, one, all that kind of thing. I mean, there was a, a GUI released on the Commodore 64 back in the day called Geos, um, which is, you know, freely available now. But this is actually a new graphical user interface that's just been released. And it's a commercial product. You've got to pay for this by um, a team called Opcoders Incorporated, and it's called C64 OS 1.0. Now, what they've done is, I mean, you actually buy this as a physical product, and they ship it out with a manual and SD card as well, some nice packaging, and it comes with not only a GUI operating system that is Windows, menus, icons, pointers, you know, you use a mouse if you want to operate this, and it comes with 25 utilities that can be used concurrently with Commodore 64 OS, including all the stuff you'd expect, you know, calculator, a calendar, stopwatch, a text viewer, a memory inspector too. There's a chess game in there. But what this lets you do is, I mean, you can actually have up to four different tabbed interfaces open at the same time. So if you ever use stuff like, you know, file managers like directory opus, that kind of thing, or, you know, midnight commander on DOS, it's a bit like that really. And there is a video that I'll link up if you want to see because, I mean, it's quite complicated to get your head around this. But um, Christian from Perifractic's Retro Recipes has done an incredible, almost hour-long deep dive into this, showing all the file management, how it all works and everything too. And really, it just makes, like you said, Ravi, the experience of using a Commodore 64 a lot easier, just being able to use it like a modern machine, really. Yeah, who said that the Amiga invented multitasking? <laughs> This is a, you can multitask on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is really awesome. Um, like the fact that it comes with that many utilities and applications is just absolutely amazing. And you know, I can imagine that they're going to be updating this and they're going to be kind of adding new features. And uh, it, it seems like it's kind of come out of the blue as well. I, I really didn't know yeah. this was in the works, and it's come as a complete package. So I remember using a SD to IEC and. Uh, all the uh, kind of 1581 uh, disk drive replacements and stuff and trying to get it working on that. And uh, it, it was quite confusing. And this, to me, looks like I could pick it up and kind of play. And also, uh, you know, hopefully it's going to have stuff like uh, music players for SID files in as well, which was one thing that I was... I think it has already. Christian shows that in his video. Yeah, that was one thing that I was really struggling to load and, and get running and I really wanted to. And... Um, 
Yeah, I can just imagine that this can grow and grow. There might even be an app store on it at one point. Um, seems to be an <laughs> app launcher there. Um, it really, really nice idea. And I love this dedication to kind of older systems. And I can't imagine it, how many different configurations and, uh, you know, uh, uh, different support for different bits of hardware they've had to consider and, uh, you know, different kind of applications that they've had to get on board. And uh, it seems like a momentous project to, to build a whole operating system for a, for for an 8-bit micro. It's like, wow. You're talking about a machine released in 1982 with an, a 1 megahertz 6x10 CPU, 64K of RAM, and a screen resolution of 320 by 200 with 16 colors. And they've got a full GUI, modern GUI running on this with some multitasking capabilities as well. Um, now, it is a commercial operating system. They're selling this, I think it's 49 Canadian dollars. Uh, no, 59 Canadian dollars, sorry. So that works out about 40 pounds with the <laughs> the ever-falling exchange rate here in the UK. Um, so, I mean, some people have been complaining, oh, it's a lot to charge for it. But you, like you said, Ravi, the amount of work that yeah. must have gone into this. And, and, and it's not like it's just going to stop, you know. It's it's going to yeah. continue. And, um, yeah, it. It's, it's it's very interesting and uh just the fact that it's got like file managers and stuff like that in there and i think you can get like a physical copy as well it seems to be like that what you actually get is you get like an sd card and you know a sticker yeah. a printed user guide um stuff like that but i'm also seeing that uh you know that there's the sx64 as well i guess they might be able to uh, run run this on that on that tiny screen um, you know it's 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 gonna it would, yeah i'm sure it would work on a lot of uh systems and uh this is just like awesome for you c64 fans next we need to see specky os come out and um, <laughs> a few other more 8-bit ones as well yeah i think at the moment there is only a physical release of it i mean i would admittedly because i think you know they are based i've got a feeling it might be in canada the base because it was canadian dollars it's obviously shipping is going to add cost to it as well. Personally, I would like it if they offered maybe a, a half-price digital download so you can put it on SD card yourself because, you know, I've got an SD card and an SD2IC, that kind of thing. That, at the time of recording, that's not something they offer by the looks of it. It is physical only. But I think maybe to get it out to more people, that might be an idea and maybe something they're going to offer in the future. I think it would make sense. Um, but I think definitely anyone that's a fan of retro computing and has a Commodore 64 should get behind this and support it because, like you said, the more people that do, the more development it's going to get. And just people dedicating this amount of effort to 40-year-old machines in 2022. Um, I just think it's amazing. So I'll put a link to that if you want to check it out in our show notes as well. Now, I must admit, one of my favourite games to play on my Wii U, and uh, something that I carried over to my Switch. You know, If you just want something that's just a little bit of fun and makes you feel a bit creative, I love Super Mario Maker, number one and number two. And this guy has done something that's way beyond anything I've ever managed to make in Super Mario Maker. He's actually recreated a load of old, classic Mario games in Mario Maker, and he's called this Super Mario Bros. 5. Yeah, so he's so this is Metroid Mike 64, who's... He started making this on the Wii U version, and then when Super Mario Maker 2 came out on the Switch, he kind of ported... I say ported, started again, kind of remade it all in uh, Mario Maker 2. And what's really unique about Mario Maker 2 is it has the World Maker mode. So you don't just have a level and you load it in and then you play it or you upload it and people can play it. You have 
we covered it when this came out. It has the actual yeah. full World Maker on there, which I think launched in uh, 2020. And he said, when this happened, it was like a dream became a reality. You can now make your own world map. And he's made 40 levels across eight worlds um, using levels from Super Mario World, Super Mario Brothers, and Super Mario Brothers 3. Um, now, this is where I get a little bit... So, are these original levels, the original game's levels that he's re- like painstakingly remade into Mario Maker 2? Yeah, that is exactly is what that, he's done. Is that what he's done? Hand remade them all, yeah, based wow. on the originals. Wow, Copy that's them. crazy. And, you know, from what I understand, the kind of reason he's done this is because of, you know, I really enjoy Mario Maker, and I sit there, and I, I'm not very good at making the levels myself. Me and my wife have had a few good goes on it, and we do little silly things like you can record, you know, on the Wii U version, you can record your own messages into, like, the question mark boxes. So, like, you know, yeah. I'd make a level for my wife, and then she'd play it. And like I'd say silly things, you know, coming out of the TV. It's like she's running along and stuff. But I always wanted to play levels people had made. But all the popular popular levels were these insanely hard viral levels. You know, these videos that go viral where, you know, you've got to do these absolutely insane things. And I, essentially, I think off the, off the back of that, he just wanted to make some old school classic Mario for people to play on it you know on a really nice version of mario you know mario maker 2 like it's it's interesting i think it's kind of pointless because these are probably out on the virtual store anyway as the original one but it's like look what i can do in mario maker which is pretty cool yeah uh, to me to me, to, to me i don't think it's pointless at all i think this is what nintendo should have done they should have made these levels anyway in mario maker yeah and i'm torn but i think it comes down to you're make you're remaking them in a really nice version of Super Mario, if that makes sense. Like, because mm. Mario Maker is like the nicest looking 2D Mario. Like the graphics on it, although it's Super Mario World or Super Mario Brothers Three, the graphics on it look outstanding compared to even Virtual Console re-releases of it. If that makes sense, it's in HD, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you know, it, it, you know, it's 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 old it's old sprites and stuff but it's new assets isn't it and it just looks that 2d imagery looks so like you say hd high definition and the sound and everything on it you know but as you say dan it would have been nice if you know nintendo just kind of put them on there anyway i guess um like he's i don't know what the difference between the uh wii u version and the uh, switch one is because uh, i've got i've got the wii u version and on the gamepad you get all the objects to edit and then you see it on the screen. So I don't know if that's the same on the Switch, but maybe that helped development or get it faster. Or he had like a lot of modifications within the <laughs> within within the Wii U version. But it does it does look really awesome. Um yeah, yeah, all credit to him and stuff. But for me, I'm just like, well, Nintendo were just gonna port it and then he's all his work is gone. You know what I mean? But um yeah, no, I I, I do think it's nice and I, I do really Love Mario Maker. I think it's uh, an amazing piece of software. And uh, I'd love to see it be done for more games, like uh, Shadow of the Beast Maker or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Metal Gear Maker or something like that. Oh, Metal Gear Maker. Yeah, that would be wonderful. I, I love the comments on this Eurogamer article. They said, um, I'm sure Nintendo's lawyers are already on the way. The fact that this is a free collection of levels made entirely in their own game. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my whole point. Yeah. <laughs> 
They've Brilliant. got to leave this one up, surely. Yeah. yeah I mean, the fact you can share these worlds. I mean, so if you want to check this out, I mean, he's poured seven years of his life into making wow. this. So um, a lot of time and effort has gone into it. If you've got Mario Maker um, on your Switch, the ID is 0G9-XN4-FNF. And I'll put that in our show notes as well by uh, Metroid Mike 64. Nice. Road Rash Maker. Oh. <laughs> Doom Maker. They're probably yeah, with Jim Maker. <laughs> okay, next we're going to get some memories of Atari with the incredible YouTuber Reese from Control Alt Reese, is our special guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite part of the show when we welcome on our very special guest. And we always love talking to like-minded people who share our passion, share our hobby, and actually our guest this week. And that has been someone who's been a part of our community for a good few years now as well, and we're massive fans of his YouTube channel. So let's welcome on Reese from the excellent YouTube channel, Control Alt. Reese, how are you doing? Oh, very well, thanks. Yeah, that's uh, that's very kind of you to say. How are you? Yeah, very good. Um, I did see that your channel, um, you've, you've almost doubled in size over the last couple of weeks due to a, uh, a video that you did about solar panels. So I'm hoping that you're going to funnel kind of maybe some of those almost 600,000 viewers on that video into the retro scene now and get them into old school Atari stuff. Oh, it's just insane, isn't it? It was completely, completely <laughs> unexpected. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, combine the, uh, the, the kind of two in- interests in the near future and uh, like you say, try and try and bring some people a- across and, and convert them to the cause. Well, obviously, you know, we were aware of you before when, you know, used to share our, our posts on Twitter and everything. We've interacted with you on there in the past, which is awesome. And, and then I came across your YouTube channel a couple of years ago. And uh, even though, you know, I'm generally known on YouTube as being more of an Amiga guy, I suppose. But I've always had a big interest in Atari. I mean, I collect for the Atari Jaguar. I remember seeing the Falcon for the first time and being blown away by that. I'm looking over at my Atari ST now. And your channel, really, I guess the foundation of it is your passion for Atari's what got you started. But I'm quite interested to kind of go way back to day one in terms of your computer and video game experience. I mean, do you remember your first experience of a game or a computer, where it all started for you? I do, yes. Um, and and funnily, funnily enough, it was Atari. Uh, so it was uh, it was one Christmas at my uncle's house and uh, my cousin had gotten an, uh, an Atari 2600 Junior for Christmas. And uh, myself and my, my other two cousins literally spent all day and, and all night playing on this thing. He only actually had two games for it, uh, which were Frogger and Keystone Capers. I don't know if you played Keystone Capers. Um, it's like yeah. a platform kind of game. And yeah, that, that that's kind of a memory that's that's stuck with me really for my my whole life, and it's 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 definitely uh, evidently had some influence on me. So yeah, they, they, then from there we kind of went on and we got an Acorn Electron, uh, which was our very first computer at home, um, which didn't last very long. Uh, that one literally exploded, uh, and then we went on and got the uh, the Atari STE. 
I actually drove over an Acorn Electron a couple of years ago accidentally, <laughs> and it survived. How did you blow yours up? That sounds quite hardcore. Uh, yeah, um, I'd like to say it was it was doing some, something hardcore, but uh, it, it was literally uh, flick the power switch, uh, big bang, lots of smoke. So obviously, <laughs> in hindsight, I guess it was a, a reefer capacitor in the power supply. I think they're, they're quite known for that, um, but we didn't know that at the time. Um, obviously, my mum was panicking and screaming that we're going to burn the ha- going to burn the house down, and uh, you know, quickly uh, unplugged it all and ran outside with it, uh, expecting it to set on fire. And uh, I remember the whole thing being the you know this this huge catastrophe at the time. So <laughs> it was quite funny, quite funny looking back. I, I was wondering as well. Um... You know what monitor did you have? Because those those kind of paper white monitors were uh, are really beautiful back then, and uh, there was a lot of Atari users I remember that had black and white monitors as well. Yeah, so with the ST, um, it was uh, I, I actually had I was quite lucky. I actually had a TV in my bedroom at the time. I think my parents had kind of learnt from their experience with the Electron that um, I was going to be on the computer uh, pretty much all night, every night, playing games and, and doing bits of programming and stuff. Um, so they actually got me my own portable TV to go with it, um, and that that was kind of how I used it back in the day over over RF, you know, the uh, the, the old fuzzy picture and everything. Uh, it wasn't until sort of much later on in life that I discovered the uh, the, the high resolution black and white um, ST monitors and and that kind of stuff, which I do own now. I've got the the color versions and the uh, black and white versions, a few different variations. But yeah, I guess uh, I guess the same as most people sort of back in those days. It was it was very much. Uh, on the old TV for me. Well, you know, Atari is obviously a big part of what you do now. I mean, is it something that you've always had a passion for then? Because, I mean, obviously Atari are a big part of gaming DNA. I mean, obviously celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. I mean, why are you so passionate about that company in particular, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's purely because um, of that STE that, that we had, I think. Um, I mean, we had it for a few years. I think it was 1991, Christmas 91, we got that, that particular machine. Um, and then I think 94, we got a 486 PC and the, the STE kind of got forgotten about. Um, and it was only a few years later when, um, you know, I, I think I was, I was away at university at the time and my parents were moving house and they were kind of downsizing and clearing out the loft and stuff. And I, I found the old ST and I was like, oh, OK. Um, and I, I really got back into it in a big way. I kind of I discovered around that time that um, that Jaguar stuff was really, really cheap. Um, so I started picking up, I picked up an Atari Jaguar and started picking up some of the games and stuff. Um, and that was really what kind of launched me into the whole Atari collecting thing. Yeah, around that time, the, the Jaguar getting back into the ST and, and the old um, 2600 stuff, because early 2000s, 2004, 2005-ish, it was, you know, you could you could buy this stuff for next to nothing. It it wasn't uh, wasn't selling for the, the silly money that it is today. If only we knew then. Indeed. Yeah, well, that that was another thing because obviously I was a university student. I I had quite a lot of Jaguar stuff, and then um, I, when I when I got into my final year at uni, I, I sold it all because I ran out of money and I desperately needed the money. Um, sold pretty much uh, my entire Jaguar collection, and uh, now fifteen years later, I'm finally uh, finally at the point where I've kind of bought it all back. But uh, yeah, it cost me uh, cost me a lot more this time around. <laughs> Well, do you think there's a kind of a, a lot of focus on the gaming side of Atari and like, and uh, when people talk about it in documentaries and stuff, and not that much on the desktop or like some of the uh, great applications that were on the system? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, really, because when you look at like the older 8 bit stuff, um, you know, of course, everyone knows about Atari and kind of their arcade history and the 2600 and that kind of thing. Um, but when you look at the 8-bit machines, people tend to talk about the Commodore 64 and the Apple II and the, the, the ZX Spectrum and that kind of thing. 
Uh, but the Atari 8-bit machines were really, really fantastic machines and really very capable machines. Um, and they were among the first. I mean, you know, it, I think it was um, 1979, the um, Atari 400 and the 800 launched, which was only two years after the Apple II. Um, and then, of course, it was sort of well into the 80s before we had the likes of the, the C64 and the, the Spectrum and the Amstrad machines and that kind of stuff. And of course, those 8-bit Ataris had really fantastic uh, arcade ports, home arcade ports, because obviously Atari developed those in-house and because they owned the uh, they owned the rights to all of those games. Uh, whereas, you know, say on my Acorn Electron, I think we had uh, I think we had a knockoff of Pac-Man called Snapper that was it was actually surprisingly good. <laughs> but um, you know, it, I remember it well. It, it was Atari that had the uh, the, the kind of the, the best sort of first-party ports. And of course, those those 8-bit machines. Um, you know, they had all the full range of hardware accessories, the disk drives, the modems, uh, printers, all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, they had the uh, SIO interface, which was kind of one of the, the uh, kind of a, a forerunner to USB. Uh, in fact, I think one of the engineers who worked on SIO actually went on to develop USB, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, really, really sort of very capable and, and very revolutionary machines. But, um, yeah, you mentioned you mentioned Atari to most people and they, they just tend to think of the games and the... Uh, the 2600 in the arcade, like I say. It is quite remarkable because we speak to developers on this show who, uh, you know, started on the Atari 400 and the 800, and they always kind of talk about them as um, kind of hidden gems, really, I suppose. You know, the people that knew about them loved those machines, and it's quite surprising in a way that they weren't more popular than the, its contemporaries. No, absolutely. I mean, obviously, like I say, the ST was kind of my my way into the world of Atari, but... Um, I've I've since gone back and kind of gone over that stuff, and I do, I do have a really nice um, original 800. I've got the XEGS and uh, a couple of other sort of 8-bit machines, and I mean that range launched in like I say 1979, um, and they sold variations of those all the way up until like 1992, I think. They were never sort of really huge sellers along the lines of the Commodore 64 and, and the Apple II, but uh, yeah, very, very well loved and, and well respected and well regarded by the people that had them and the people that worked on them. They seemed um, very popular in America when I went over there. There were uh, lots of 800 and 400s and I'd not actually seen one before. And then there was a lot of love and people had them out and, you know, they were doing amazing stuff on it. And I've always kind of just associated that era with like the 2600 and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, the the eight hundred is such a well engineered and well put together machine. Um, I don't have a four hundred, but uh, I do I do have the eight hundred here, and it's just got a really nice, um, solid mechanical keyboard, and it, it you know it's got the expansion slots internally, and it, like I say, it's got the SIO interface for all of those peripherals. So a really well engineered and, and really well thought out machine, and a really capable machine with some really good uh, sort of graphics and, and sound capabilities as well. Well, obviously, in 1983, Atari kind of split into two separate parts. He had uh, Warner Brothers that bought the arcade division, and then Jack Tramiel, who formerly ran Commodore, uh, took over the home division of it as well. So do you kind of think um, the rivalry maybe that Jack had with his previous company drove him to innovate in that home computer market? Yeah, I think um, I think Jack was kind of notoriously a, a very ruthless uh, businessman and very sort of cost oriented, oriented and that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I also had a point to prove trying to uh, sort of uh, screw over his uh, his previous employers. Um, hence, you know, rushing rushing the ST out, knowing that the Amiga was coming, and um, you know, trying to get that to market as quickly as possible. Um, he, I know, he cancelled a few things like the the fifty two hundred console. I think as soon as he got in, he cancelled that. 
Um, so yeah, very uh, very kind of driven and and motivated, I think. And they got the whole kind of family behind it, didn't they? They were all working for Atari at some point. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding was that they were a family of engineers. I mean, you know, they had um, Leonard, who was uh, who was directly involved in some of the programming and the, and the technical side of things. And I think um, Sam was the other son, and he was kind of, uh, I think he was kind of in charge of the ST and that side of things as well. So definitely a, a family business. Yeah, well, the ST, um, uh, it was kind of embraced by professional musicians and... Uh, was this kind of due to the sound capabilities and uh, stuff like uh, Cubase? Yeah, so uh, I think when um, when Jack was was kind of first um, it, when he first envisioned the the ST project, uh, he kind of firmly had the Mac in his sights, the original sort of nineteen eighty four Apple Macintosh. Um, in fact, the ST was known as the Jackintosh when it was first released, uh, in reference to that, and that's why it had that uh, you know those, those excellent sort of black and white. Uh, monitors and stuff um, because that was kind of the the professional market that they were aiming for Um, i'm not quite sure where the decision to incorporate midi ports came from um, but but uh, yeah obviously a big part of the uh, the kind of musicians um, picking up the machine uh, were due to those midi ports Um, and of course the the st had the 8 megahertz uh, 68,000 cpu as well so it had quite a lot of sort of processing power especially compared to sort of sequencers and, and other kind of midi equipment of the time um, and I think that sort of combined with the low cost of them um, and the fact that they're you know fairly fairly robust fairly indestructible um, I know I know I've seen video footage of people like Pet Shop Boys and, and the Prodigy um, you know actually using them live on stage um, mm. from back in those days as well uh, I, I think it was I think it was a very wise move of Atari to kind of incorporate all of those capabilities and, and kind of target that market definitely. Because when you think of Jack Tramiel, he's um, you know notorious for like penny pinching anywhere he could, wasn't he? Really, so that decision to kind of put those ports on there that weren't really needed for you know machine targeting, word processing, and programming and games, it, it was quite an interesting choice. But obviously, like you said, I mean, it really made a a market for the ST. So I, it's a quite a curious decision why they put those on there. It will be interesting to find out maybe of someone one day. Yeah, I think it's it's not something I've really researched, but I think it was essentially. Uh, Essentially, they got it. They got that functionality for free because it's built into the the YM sound chip or something. It, it's something I really need to sort of research and cover properly in a video because it's a whole side of the ST that I've, I've not really explored in great detail yet. But yeah, evidently, evidently a very very wise decision on his part. Yeah, um, I, I was just looking at like kind of the artists that use the ST and uh, just some amazing names. I, I remember Fatboy Slim was one, but. Um, you know, they got like Jamiroquai, uh, Gary Newman, Bomb the Bass, uh, William mm. Orbit, Depeche Mode. It's like, you know, a huge list of uh, musicians that used it and uh, seemed like a very kind of capable system. Yeah, I remember seeing a video on YouTube that uh, one of the, I think it was one of the musicians magazines had done a few years ago. I think it was around 2016-ish, 2016-ish. Uh, and it was a, a studio tour that they did with Fatboy Slim, and he still had his ST set up and all of his boxes of discs and stuff. And he was apparently still mm. using it to make music as recently as, uh, as you know, like 2016-ish. So, yeah, really cool. Well, you mentioned about um, Jack rushing the Atari ST out, and I know there was that kind of deal with Amiga that was originally going to be an Atari machine. I think, you know, there, there are mock-ups and pictures online of um, mm. the Atari 1850 XLD. Yeah. 
that would have been what they were going to use those chips in. I mean, I, I don't know how much you know about that story, but that's quite interesting. And then obviously out of that, I mean, he decided to make his own machine, the ST. What kind of made that so special then? And what do you think any of that kind of DNA went into the, the ST's decisions and in terms of hardware? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think he was he was more targeting the um, the Mac. I think if they'd specifically designed the ST as purely a games machine, they probably would have done things slightly differently. Um, I know they originally had a different sound chip in development for it, which um, there's a whole story about how they got screwed over and basically had to switch to the uh, to the Yamaha chip at the last minute. But yeah, I, I think the sort of the decision to rush it out before the Amiga was was more a case of just trying to sort of get one over on Commodore. Uh, and of course, the, I mean, the Amiga 1000, which which did release at around the same time as the ST, was was the much more expensive machine. I mean, it was a much more capable machine. But yeah, it, it, you know, it, it was three or four times the, the price at launch. So uh, yeah. it's, you know, was it necessarily targeted as a direct competitor initially? I'm, I'm not sure. It's interesting that there was that kind of UK Atari scene as well. And like, I was wondering how important people like Jeff Minter were to... Uh, that especially them being kind of a, a us-based company they must have had divisions or all, all around the world so i think um i think jeff first started um uh, did he do some apple II stuff originally and and some commodore 64 stuff i'm not quite sure what order uh that came in um mm. but he he was a very uh he was very big supporter uh, and sort of champion of the st in the very early days and and, and very sort of up on it um, and later on, when Atari were developing uh, the Panther and later the Jaguar, um, I know that he was actually flown over to their offices in America and, and sort of acted as a consultant on that at, at a very low level. Um, so he he's sort of always been a very well regarded and a respected figure in the uh, in the Atari uh, industry, um, and you know obviously quite close connections with with Atari. Um, but yeah, of course, the UK developers at the time we had a we had a thriving um, software development scene off the back of uh, off the back of the British computers like the Spectrum and the um, you know the Amstrads and that kind of stuff. Um, evidently, looking to branch out into something else, and uh, yeah, picked up on the ST as well. Um, I think uh, back in those days, I think we, we definitely were sort of punching well above our weight on the uh, on the software and the game development side of things. Um, mm. so I know there are a lot of people, sort of well-known names today, like Jeff, who uh, who did sort of cut their teeth on the ST, and, and and that's kind of what they're best known for. So I think you know the late '80s home computer and gaming scene in Britain was such an interesting place, and you had all these different companies and wild and weird devices. I mean, we mentioned Jeff Minter, and uh, from when we interviewed him, you know, he was talking about the Conix Multi System, which was uh, a really ambitious system that never got released. But then the team who worked on that went on to form another company, Flare Technology. They got involved in Atari, who wanted to make a return to gaming consoles around that time, didn't they? What was kind of the, the story there from what you know? Yeah, so, um, I, I mean, there was uh, Martin Brennan, who was the uh, the, the founder of uh, flare technology um, and after the after the conics um, he was brought on board uh, to work with atari um, atari had started a project um, as, as a follow-up to the 7800 which was kind of notoriously uh, quite a big flop and they're interested in, in in building a competitor to the um like the snes and the mega drive and that kind of late 80s uh, 16-bit console era uh, and the project they came up with was called the panther and um 
yeah, like I say, Martin Brennan from from uh, Flare was was brought on as kind of the lead developer and a, as a consultant on that particular project. Um, ultimately, the Panther. I mean, that's a whole story in and of itself. I don't know if you want to go into that. But uh, ultimately, the Panther was cancelled right at the last minute, um, even though they had working prototypes out there and, and, and sort of game developers working on games and stuff. Um, and then he, he was kind of working on in parallel on the uh, on the Jaguar, of course. Um, so he he also had a lot of input into the into the Atari Jaguar um, and a lot of the sort of 2D uh, sprite hardware that that was developed um, in conjunction with Flare, uh, went on to uh, be incorporated into that as well. So uh, quite a big influence on kind of early '90s Atari uh, and the and the Jaguar in particular. Well, you, you mentioned the uh, seventy eight hundred, and uh, it was a bit of a flop. Um, <laughs> do you know Do you know why this kind of happened, or, or, or what What do you think happened there? Yeah, so the uh, the seventy eight hundred um, was a bit of a weird one, really. Um, I mean, you have to bear in mind that um, it, it was kind of released to compete with the likes of the the, the NES and the, and the Master System, and and later on the the SNES and the, and the Mega Drive, of course. And when you compare it to that kind of era of consoles, it it was it was severely lacking, um, to put it politely. Um, particularly the audio capabilities, uh, they, they basically decided that they weren't going to put a dedicated audio chip in it um, and just kind of reuse the uh, the chip from the 2600. So graphically, it wasn't, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't on par with the, the 16-bit machines, um, but it wasn't horrific. But then obviously you're playing these games and, and you've just got, you know, your very basic beeps and boops coming out of the speaker. Uh, and when you compare that to some of the stuff that was on on the NES and on the Master System, it was like you know, you know what are they playing at? It's <laughs> and 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 the market responded accordingly. Um, you know, it, it was a complete flop, um, and I think they realised that. And I think that there was kind of a mad panic internally at Atari to uh, to release something decent as a, as kind of a follow up to that. Um, personally, I I love it as a console. I think it's uh, I think it I think it's flawed, but it's uh, it's certainly got its charm. Um, and of course, it's fully backwards compatible with the twenty six hundred as well. So, if you get your hands on a, a seventy eight hundred and, and kind of mod it, so you've got a nice clean S video output and a composite video output, uh, it's a great way to play twenty six hundred games. So, I guess it's useful for that, if nothing else. And I guess it's hard to release anything after the uh, crash of nineteen eighty free as well you know just just to kind of get people's confidence and get 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 a machine out there you know yeah well that, i think that's become a bit of a controversial subject um <laughs> just lately uh you know a lot of debate about whether it actually happened and, and whether it was a thing outside of america or whether it was purely mm. purely an atari thing and all of that kind of thing as well but uh yeah atari were pushing a pushing their look a bit with the 2600 and kind of repackaging it and and you know trying to reinvent it for i mean that it was it was on the market for, for how long to, you know 20 years plus in various different forms um which is is completely unheard of i, I don't think there's any other console that uh, has has had that much life kind of wrung out of it by its by its inventor so yeah it's on sale today in some ways isn't it the 2600 and the vcs well true <laughs> so yeah it does yeah. It, its dna does live on in in various yeah. forms so yeah well you mentioned about the panther before and um, i've always found that a fascinating system because I'm a big fan of the Jaguar and obviously the Panther was kind of the, like you mentioned, the cancelled predecessor of that. And I know there are some prototypes out there. I mean, how much do you kind of know about the Panther and its capabilities? And I mean, what was it kind of on par with them? Was it kind of up to Super Nintendo and Mega Drive standard or where did it kind of sit in that market, would you say? 
I've done uh, a huge amount of research on the Panther. So um, uh, just a just a quick plug. Um, there, there is a whole a huge page of research on my website. I started looking into it. I started looking to, into it quite a while back, and um, there's so much information out there, but it's it's all kind of spread out across forums and stuff. So I started kind of putting it together, just like I always do when I'm kind of preliminarily um, sort of working on the early stages of a video, and um, decided to put it all on my website. And I was contacted by someone, um, a guy called Ross uh, Ross Silliphant, who's working on a book called Games That Weren't, uh, which is published by Bitmap Books, and. Mm-hmm. He'd done a huge amount of research and interviewed a lot of people behind the scenes and a lot of ex-Atari people and people at various developers who'd been involved with the Panther um, and basically said to me, you know, the, I, the Panther wasn't at a point that they wanted to, that that they felt that there was anything substantial that they could include in the book, um, but they didn't want his research to go to waste. So basically... I could have it all, um, do what I would, you know, whatever I wanted with it, put it on my website, make a video about it, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I was just handed this this huge amount of, of research on the Atari Panther, which is really, really cool. Um, and I, I put it all out there, obviously, because it's uh, I want it to be out there. And that, that's kind of why I do this. That's kind of my motivation for this. So, yeah, it, it was it was a very interesting system. Um, it was... So it used the sixty-eight thousand CPU, same as the uh, the ST and the Amiga and the uh, and the Mega Drive, um, and and the Neo Geo, uh, quite famously. Uh, but it was mm. it was clocked at sixteen megahertz. Um, and if you bear in mind that the uh, I think the Mega Drive was like seven megahertz, and the um, the Neo Geo was twelve. Um, it had much much faster CPU than either of those systems, and it also had a, a really really powerful dedicated two D. Uh, sprite capabilities, uh, sprite scaling and, uh, and rotation and, and scrolling and all that stuff. Uh, a really, really sophisticated graphics chip. And the sound chip that they used was made by a company called Ensonic, who made uh, synthesizers and, uh, and that kind of stuff um, back in the 80s. And it, I, th- I think they were aiming it sort of quite squarely at the Neo Geo, uh, at the really, really high end of the market. Uh, and by all accounts, um, you know, from, from the developers that worked on it, including Jeff Minter, who was uh, sort of very high up, um, at a consultant level, working on that system, um, it, it, it was a really, really powerful machine. Uh, the trouble is, I think it just came a little bit too late. Um, the, you know, the Mega Drive and the SNES were, were really well established, um, and it, it, the N sixty four and the PlayStation were kind of on the horizon, and it, it, it was becoming obvious that that three D was kind of going to be the future of gaming, and that they they'd kind of reused um, some of the technology that they developed for that system in the Jaguar um, and kind of wanted to push that as a 3D system. And it just got to a point where where they said, well, you know, we, we don't want to release a, a kind of last generation 2D system and, and kind of cannibalize the Jaguar. Uh, so we'll cancel it and, and just release that, uh, which I think is a shame because, like I say, it, it was really advanced. It had a, a lot of stuff um, that was already up and running on it. Um, and by all accounts, it, it, it was a really, really impressive system. But ultimately, probably the right decision uh, as far as Atari were concerned. Yeah, for a company like trying to juggle the launch of two consoles that close together, that would have been quite a balancing act, I think, wouldn't it? But I'm looking at the list of games that were you know, in development for it. I mean, Cygnosis were working on Shadow of the Beast for it. Um, Domark were doing a Panther Port of Pit Fighter as well. And then you had stuff like Cybermorph and Raiden that obviously came out on the Jaguar after that as well. So it does look like it was yeah, pretty much at a almost ready to be released state when it got canned yeah there was there was 
allegedly uh, a serious hardware bug with it. Um, I know um, Leonard Tramiel was was quite uh, heavily involved in the development of the Panther, um, and he was kind of working on the the software development environment for it, which uh, which was ultimately ran natively on the ST and the TT. And he was kind of working with developers trying to find a workaround for this hardware bug. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the hardware side of Atari weren't going to give him any budget to kind of redevelop the, the chip or anything like that. So ultimately, probably the right decision. And um, because of because of the hardware that they were using, it, it would have been a very expensive machine. And it would have been a, a thoroughly 2D machine um, in an age when the N64 and, and the PlayStation were kind of just starting to uh, starting to appear. So... Yeah, yeah, a good business decision to to go with the Jaguar, I think, but uh, but a real shame. I was wondering, do you think if they'd kind of released the Panther, there wouldn't have been that huge gap uh, between you know uh, machines coming out in the games world? Did did that kind of affect their dominance in the uh, video games market? Yeah, well, the um, the the games division and, and the home computer divisions at Atari were kind of notoriously. Um, at odds with each other, um, they, they, I get the impression they didn't get along. I mean, much earlier on, kind of in the eight bit era, um, they took the. I mean, the, the original plan was for the Atari four hundred and the eight hundred to actually be a games console to be um, the fifty two hundred, which would have been the successor to the twenty six hundred. And right at the last minute, the home computer division came along and said, "Oh no, we want this hardware for ourselves. We're going to release this as a computer." Now, of course, they, they did sit on that for a few years and, and eventually released that as the 5200. But because the two divisions didn't get along and couldn't agree on anything, um, the, the home computer division put their foot down and said, no, you, you know, you can you can use our technology and, and you can release this console, um, but we're not going to allow you to make it compatible with all of the games that are already out there for the 8-bit computers. So they made some very minimal changes at a low level to like the operating system and, and move some stuff around in memory, memory addresses and stuff. Um, and released a console that uh, wasn't compatible with the sort of huge back catalogue of games that was out there. Um, so yeah, the 5200, really great console, um, and developers had to go out and adapt all of their games to run on it. And then ultimately, um, it was on it was on the market for less than a year, so <laughs> before it got cancelled. <laughs> so very strange decision that, but um, I think it's very uh, it's very telling of, of kind of what the culture was like at Atari at the time, and, and kind of the the rivalry between between the two divisions, if you like. Yeah. And that wasn't limited to just Atari. You know, you had Sega fighting each other. <laughs> you had like oh, I think every, every company kind of struggled with internal conflicts. And I think as well, I mean, that time the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, Atari were a very busy company. I mean, you mentioned there, you know, their their reestablishment into the console market with the Panther, then the Jaguar, but they weren't taking their foot off the gas with the, the computers either. I mean, they were upgrading the, the ST. Obviously, we've got the um, Atari STE model um, that was enhanced with a, a blitter from memory. It's got better sound capabilities as well. Then obviously, we've got the Falcon that came out in 1992. But in between that, there was a, a really interesting prototype that I must admit... I don't know all that much about. Um, maybe you can explain a bit more about what this is. Kind of the gap between the STE and the Falcon, which was the Atari Sparrow. Yeah, so the the story of the Falcon is um, quite interesting. I mean, it's Atari, so uh, I suppose that's to be that's to be expected. Um, mm. But yeah, so uh, they had the Falcon was in development, and it was going to be this this super powerful machine that was that was going to you know destroy the Amiga and. Uh, you know, it, it was based on the, um, it was going to run the uh, 68040, I think, and really, really sort of ridiculously powerful machine. 
Uh, but as kind of a, a backup plan, a kind of a side project, they were also developing this machine called the Sparrow, which was kind of the next generation ST after the SDE, based on the same architecture as the ST and all that stuff. Now, as it happens, as it kind of transpires within Atari, rather than going with the much more powerful machine that they had in development, um, they decided to take the Sparrow and release that as the Falcon. Still still a really impressive machine, um, but uh, kind of... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, not quite, uh, not quite as as great as it could have been. But yeah, I, I do own a, a prototype Sparrow motherboard, uh, which was found at um, Atari's offices in New York when they were shut down in in the mid nineties. Really, really common story with Atari that um, you know uh, after they after they shut down, um, a lot of people got sort of bought up the assets and the old buildings and, and, and the old offices and that kind of stuff. And they went in there and they found all these really weird uh, prototypes and things that they've been working on. A lot of cancelled stuff that had never sort of seen the light of day and, uh, you know, just like cupboards and cupboards full of full of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's all uh, highly collectible. But, uh, yeah, yet again, it, it, it's, it's, it's a story of, um, you know, something that could have been uh, far greater than it, than it ended up being. Uh, not not uh, wanting to... Uh, yeah, not wanting to do, uh, dismiss the Falcon in any way because it was it was a great machine when it came out. But uh, again, interesting to think about what could have been. Because you mentioned the Atari Falcon, and you know I've got vivid memories of reading about it in magazines back in 1992. And like you mentioned, that was Atari's attempt to really you know destroy the Amiga in many ways because it was up against the Amiga 1200. And I remember Amiga magazines tried to you know <laughs> kind of make out like the A1200 was a better machine, but the Falcon on paper, you know, on specs absolutely buried the Amiga 1200. I mean, what memories have you got about seeing that machine? And as like an ST fan, were you excited when you started hearing about the Falcon? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly was. I mean, we got our STE in uh, 1991, Christmas 91. uh, And we used to get ST format every month, which was uh, sort of the big Atari ST magazine. Um, And I I remember they were really bigging up the Falcon as as sort of the next big thing. And uh, of course, it had the 68030 CPU, which was... uh, obviously better than the Amiga 1200 68020. And uh, yeah, you know, as a kid, I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, you know, you're seeing the screenshots of some of those early games and stuff and, uh, you know, reading about its, its audio capabilities and how it was going to be the next big thing in music production and all that kind of thing. And it's a really, really exciting thing. Um, but ultimately, I think it just, it, it suffered from the same fate as, as kind of the other stuff that Atari were doing in the early 90s. And just kind of, I think the, the uh, developers weren't supported very well and, and kind of lost lost faith in it and ultimately when it was released there wasn't a huge amount of software available for it and um it's a shame really it, it was a really uh it had a huge amount of potential and uh, i think even now it's, it's perhaps not living up to that potential but uh, certainly at the time as a kid as an impressionable young kid playing games on his atari st it was like oh you know that's uh, that looks amazing <laughs> i'd love to get my hands on one of those uh, i've got to ask Reese, have you got one in your collection today i haven't no i um i remember a few years back when i when, when i first started collecting atari stuff um you could pick them up on ebay you know boxed in basically brand new in box for like two three you know maybe 400 quid for a really really nice one uh, but there were just no games available for them and no software available for them. And I just thought, well, you know, why would anyone want, want one of those? It's 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 pretty much useless. And of course, nowadays they sell for, well, they can sell for upwards, upwards of uh, sort of £2,000. So uh, kind of kicking myself a bit mm. thinking, yeah, you know, <laughs> should have grabbed one when I had the chance, really. They also released like some insane versions. Like I saw that there was a, a 060 version and um, there was like some third party ones as well. Um, uh, one was called The Eagle. 
And they had some uh, like tower kind of designs and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's quite interesting that um, the Falcon, of all things, kind of launched this this whole market for clones. So I think there was there was one called the Medusa, uh, one called the Hades, um, and they, they were upgraded as well because obviously you could um, upgrade the uh, sixty eight oh three oh CPU with a, a you know oh four oh or oh six oh. Um, uh, uh, people took it really, really far, and I think they were putting like 128 mega RAM in them, and all sorts of high resolution graphics cards. And and when Atari eventually went pop in um, sort of 96 ish, whenever it was, um, I think it was a German company called C Lab uh, picked up the rights to the Falcon, um, and they actually went on and, and carried on making it. I think it, I think into the early 2000s, and they made like rack mounted versions and all sorts of stuff that were were used. Um, in the music production industry so yeah interesting that it had this kind of it kind of took on this second life as as this kind of specialized thing as well yeah and um one thing obviously that the big legacy from the the falcon is you know they're doing like a little tower version of it that actually bizarrely you know just one of these weird things in atari history actually went on to really inspire and i think was officially licensed to be the design of the playstation 2 Yes, yes, that's a very good point. They, I think it was called the, the Falcon Microbox or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, but earlier I was talking about the, the Sparrow and the Falcon um, and, and how they were kind of two separate projects and, and they actually took the Sparrow project and decided to run with that and make that the Falcon. Well, the, the upright sort of PS2-style um, design was actually the original Falcon project. But when um, when Sony released the PlayStation Two and the, and they tried to patent the design, I think they they had to actually cite that as as a prior example. I think Atari all, already had the, the patent on it or something, um, if if I recall correctly. So yeah, it looked like it was going to be a really cool little machine, just like a little uh, sort of desktop, um, you know, like like a modern small form factor system. But uh, yeah, in 1992, that would have been that would have been really impressive. <laughs> Yes, if no one's seen this before, I mean, if you Google yeah, Atari Microbox and you'll see, it literally looks just like a white PS2 yeah. vertically, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, really similar. So let's get into the Atari Jaguar a bit more. Um, and I know you and I, you know, both fans of the Jaguars. You know, I've nearly got a complete collection. I don't know kind of where you're at with yours. I'm looking over at my um, my Atari Jaguar CD I, next to me as well. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't shut up about Atari carts. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I've got I've got Atari carts. I'm at um, yeah. so of the fifty commercial cartridge releases. I think I've got forty six or forty seven now. There's only a couple of games I'm yeah, missing. I'm about the, the, same. the really expensive yeah. ones, um, but I haven't got a Jag yeah. CD because yet again that's something I didn't pick up when I had the opportunity. Again, yeah, I got mine. I think I paid three hundred pounds for a Jaguar with a CD. Wow, back in like twenty fourteen. So, um, yeah, and they're obviously quite rare today. But, I mean, I've, I've always liked the Jag because I think it was that strange era when that kind of generation that came along, like the 3DO and the CD32, between the the 16-bit Mighty Machines, you know, the, the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo, and the PlayStation coming along and just decimating everything. And um, what are kind of your memories of, of the Jaguar then when it came along? So I remember, obviously, they were hyping that up as, you know, the first powerful 64-bit console were you kind of really excited when you first heard about the Jag? Oh yes, oh yes. I remember um, reading those ST format magazines when I was a kid, and, and the Jag was another thing that they were really sort of hyping up at the time. Obviously, I think it, it was kind of known at the time that Atari were kind of on the back foot and kind of struggling a bit, um, and the Jag was going to be the thing that was going to save them and, and, and kind of uh, you know kind of carry them well into the nineties. Um, and seeing some of those early screenshots and stuff, um, certainly seeing them 
kind of static printed in a magazine, stuff like... <laughs> I laugh because I'm going to say Club Drive. Um, that was one that they were mm. really pushing. Obviously, in hindsight, it's it's not been uh, perhaps uh, remembered quite so fondly. <laughs> but it was 3D and we didn't have 3D. Well, exactly, that, exactly. So, yeah. Seeing that those sort of fully 3D rendered, you know, as blocky as it was, you know, cars driving around in, in a city and stuff, there, there was nothing else like that at the time. Um, and And... To be fair to Atari, I mean, when when the Jaguar was first announced and when the first consoles kind of started to appear, it, there was nothing else like it on the market, and it was the most powerful um, 3D console on the market at the time. It was very short lived, um, and the fact that they had manufacturing issues that meant that it took them, you know, uh, over a year for them to actually start pumping them out in any kind of considerable numbers, um, kind of kind of uh, ruined the whole thing for them. But um, yeah, at the time, it was a huge amount of promise. And as a kid, it was just like, oh, you know, how cool is that? And to be fair, you know, even as an adult, 30 years later, you know, getting on for 30 years later, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I, I love it. And uh, it's it's nice that it's got such a passionate sort of following in this day and age, definitely. You mentioned those kind of problems with manufacturing. I mean, we had Daryl Still, who um, was the manager of Atari UK um, at the time, and he had the job of launching the Jaguar. We had him on the show a couple of years ago and he mentioned that, you know, the fact that they just couldn't manufacture enough for that Christmas market. And, you know, that could have maybe made it a much more popular console if they could just get enough of them out there. It was just seemed like it was a series of unfortunate events, really, I suppose, with the launch of it. Yeah, well, of course, the the hardware was actually manufactured by IBM, which was uh, quite surprising. Um, Mm. So, you know, manufactured to, uh, to a very high standard, but yeah, it, it was just kind of so exotic and so specialist at the time, and and with with Atari being kind of as dysfunctional as they were, um, unfortunately, yeah, they they missed that first that first Christmas, and uh, like I say, it, it kind of took a year for them to sort of get fully up to speed on it. By which point, people were talking about the N sixty four and the and the PlayStation, and it was kind of uh, a little bit too late. But apparently, a lot of the um, SDKs, like software development kit, and developers units and stuff weren't really up to scratch and quite buggy and this led to like you know a lot of ports just just of uh like lesser games and stuff and um uh put off kind of third party stuff what why else do you think there was uh not many third party titles on the uh jaguar yeah it was notoriously difficult to work with um the uh the, the tom and jerry chips in there which are the kind of the specialist um audio and graphics chips in the Jaguar, um, and they put the uh, the sixty eight thousand CPU in there, which was obviously the uh, the same CPU that had been used in the ST, um, and of course the Amiga, the Mega Drive, and and all that kind of stuff. Um, so a lot of developers, uh, because they weren't receiving very good support from Atari uh, and very good documentation on the custom chips, kind of fell back to the sixty eight thousand, um, and kind of lent on that quite heavily. And there are a fair few games. Um, that, that kind of don't use the Jags specialist hardware to its full potential, um, just because you know they fell back on that chip because they, it meant that they could get games released and, and get something to market. Yeah, so the, the uh, obviously the development kit for the Jag was kind of a, a continuation of what they developed for the Panther um, running on uh, the Atari TT030. Um, so it was kind of a thing that was kind of tethered to that and allowed developers to kind of load games onto it, kind of run them from memory and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I know that um, Jeff Minter was was also involved in the development of that as well. Um, and I think Leonard, I think Leonard Trammell was um, kind of on the software side of it. 
But yeah, I guess because they, they they kind of pulled all of their resources into the Panther um, and then kind of decided to uh, very quickly finish off the Jag and actually release that instead. Um, I, I guess the software side of it and the SDK and the developer support wasn't quite there. And of course, a lot of the developers, I think, probably felt like they'd kind of been burnt a bit on the Panther because they'd they'd put so much work into developing games for it, only for it to be pulled at the very last second. And then it was like, oh, you know okay, it's all about the Jag now. Well, do we really want to invest all of our resources into this now or is the same thing going to happen again? So just uh, quite a, a combination of events, I think, that uh, combination of uh, circumstances at the time that led to uh, led to developers not being all that confident in it. And I think you think of the market in like 93, 94. I mean, today we've got like three consoles. But then, you know, you had, you think 93, you still had the, the Super Nintendo had only been out a year. Mega Drive was still selling like hotcakes. You had the 3DO, CD32, the Jaguar. You knew the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn were on the horizon. Nintendo had this Project Reality thing coming out. So as a developer and even as a consumer, kind of, it was really hard to know which one to back, I guess. So that probably had a, a big impact on on sales and developer confidence as well. Yeah, you would think that uh, you'd think that developers would have a lot of confidence in Atari with kind of the history and the you know the kind of the the provenance and uh, the the weight that that name would carry. But, of course, they'd had a pretty bad run um, of consoles. Obviously, they'd have the Panther that that, that had been cancelled and they'd had the 7800, which hadn't done very well at all. Uh, And then previously to that, they had the 5200, which had been pulled after only a year. So I can certainly see why developers weren't keen on working with them at the time. Well, one thing that the Atari Jaguar was really ahead of its time in and very innovative, and I was actually quite pleased to see that there is um, going to be a version of Atari Jaguar's Missile Command on the Atari 50 collection. And that is quite a unique game because it is the only game in the Jaguar's library that supports the unreleased Atari Jaguar virtual reality headset. Now, people who haven't heard about this might be like, what, there was a VR headset for the Jaguar? Uh, Yes, so a really interesting thing. And another thing that was kind of being really pushed by the magazines at the time and, and that was sort of really amazed by as a kid, um, I remember the um, the virtuality machines, uh, which is actually it's actually I've since found out is a company that is that is local to me that's actually based in my hometown of Leicester, or or they were at the mm. time, uh, and they work with Leicester University to develop that technology. So they were kind of really huge, and uh, they they actually worked with Atari on this headset for the Jaguar, and. Um, it, it it was another one of these really strange projects that was that was sort of really really advanced and they'd got it all working and by all accounts I mean there there are working prototypes out there that are in the hands of people um I, you know I've seen video footage of them working and, and by all accounts it worked really really well um and like you say there was there was Missile Command 3D which which supported it and yet again it it, it was just one of those things where Atari was kind of at that stage in its life cycle where it was just kind of in the process of imploding um and unfortunately it just it, it didn't make it to market but um really really impressive thing to see in action um uh, well worth um having a look at some youtube videos and stuff um just seeing those kind of prototype units working because i mean how amazing would that have been in 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 you know the the mid 90s a, a virtual reality headset that you could just plug in and, and use at home um, and something that we didn't get until very, very recently with uh, obviously stuff like the Oculus Rift and and that kind of thing. So w- w- well ahead of its so time. So ahead of its time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think you can actually, there is a prototype, isn't there, at the um, Retro Computing Museum in Leicester? I, think, I don't think it's working, but you can go and see it there if you want to kind of see what it looked like. Yes, um, I, I actually went there quite recently myself, but um, they didn't uh, didn't let me play with it. So that's a shame. No, but I did, I did get to play on one of the virtuality machines. So uh, 
definitely well worth a visit. That's worth a trip. I think that's Dan's dream to one day find a pristine VR unit. Some <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just open that up. Um, I, I was wondering as well, did they have any like future plans uh, for, for for like Jaguars, like a Jaguar two or anything like that? They did. Yes, they were um, they were working on something called the Jag Duo, which was the the Jaguar. Uh, console with the CD unit actually incorporated into it, uh, all into one console, um, a really sleek looking uh, CD based console. Uh, of course, that ended up not happening. Um, and they also did sort of carry that through to a Jaguar 2. Um, and they were working on a new graphics chip, which I believe they had working prototypes of. Um, and the Jaguar 2 was going to be backwards compatible as well, which was something that was quite unusual at the time. Um, so it was going to be fully backwards compatible with all of the existing Jaguar games, um, but then also support these sort of next generation um, graphically advanced CD based games as well. Again, another thing that uh, unfortunately uh, didn't end up happening because of uh, Atari's uh, state of ongoing implosion at the time. But uh, there are prototypes out there. Uh, there are pictures on the internet. I don't believe anyone has uh, managed to get one working, uh, which is a shame. But uh, yeah, it would have been a really cool thing to see, I think. And the CD unit as well. I mean, I've got one of those and they launched pretty late in the Jaguar's life. I think it was like end of 95 when that came out. So you're talking, I mean, PlayStation was on the market by then. Mm. And only like 11 games ever came out on that. But it did kind of feel like it's weird because you see the announcements of the Jaguar and there are videos online where you can see um, Leonard and Sam Tremiel launching it and talking about the, the CD right at the launch of the system back in 93, but obviously it took them such a long time to get it out there. It just felt like they'd missed the boat on the on the CD market, I guess. Yeah, and I, th- I think a lot of those CD games, um, having played them, I don't own a Jaguar CD, but I have got the um, the game drive flash cart, which supports the CD games. Mm. Um, having played them, I think they suffer from, you know, the same sort of issues as the other very early CD-based stuff in that uh, developers didn't really know what to do with all the extra storage space. And, you know, you've got got impressive pre-rendered FMV cutscenes and stuff, um, but the actual gameplay of the games themselves, uh, I don't think really fully takes advantage of the technology. Um, but cool to see what they were doing with it at the time. And, and like you say, yeah, CD was uh, certainly in their plans from the very beginning. Uh, and they were also working on a CD drive for the ST as well, which which never saw the light of day. Yeah, there are some games on there that I think, you know, Iron Soldier 2 is worth a play. And you've got Battle Morph as well, which is uh, the follow-up to the famous <laughs> Cyber Morph. That actually, I think it's a better game, Battle Morph on the CD, but obviously just because there were such limited releases and no one really played them. I think, you know, like you mentioned today, there is a, a flash cart available for the Jaguar, and obviously you can play these on emulation. So there are definitely a few kind of hidden gems in the uh, the 11 games <laughs> that were released on the uh, the Jaguar CD. Yeah, there was some really sort of unique and interesting stuff on the Jaguar, and I think that's what kind of what makes it interesting as a console. You know, the, because they were kind of among those first, those very first sort of three D capable consoles. That they weren't really, they didn't really know what to do with the technology, and they they kind of tried a lot of interesting stuff. And I, I think that's kind of what makes it unique and and what makes it interesting to collect for. Well, interestingly, the um. Atari Jaguar case has been repurposed a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> one of them was uh, uh, the ill-fated uh, Coleco Chameleon as well, which uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of um, <laughs> w- w- was a was a crazy project. And um, another one was dental machines as well. And I know people kind of love this idea. Do, do you think we're going to see the uh, Jaguar face uh, the Jaguar case come back in another 
form at any time or uh, what what do you think about these kind of machines do it does anybody collect the dental jaguars at all i I, i'd actually quite like one for the collection just because it's a it's a cool looking thing uh the interesting thing is they they used the cartridge slot as well didn't they for like a i think it was for like a an add-on or a memory expansion or something because they yeah like you say it was a i think it was a dental camera that they turned it into but when hasbro got their hands on uh, all of Atari's assets, um, sort of 96, 97-ish or whenever it was, or I think possibly a bit later than that, actually. They basically released all of the Jaguar stuff into the public domain. So, uh, you know, all of the patents on, on the, the case design and the hardware and all of sort of the encryption stuff for the Jaguar CD, which is why there was quite a lot of um, sort of homebrew stuff that started to appear on it around that time. Uh, and yeah, one of the things they did was they sold the uh, the case molds. Um, obviously, for the cases were injection molded, so they had uh, they had the proper, very expensive molds made. Um, and they sold those to a dental company who went on to uh, use it for a for a camera, as you do. Um, and yeah, like you say, the the, the Coleco Chameleon. And who knows? Uh, like I say, that case design is in the public domain, so I'm not not quite sure who who claims to own it at the moment, but uh, could certainly come back in some form or I'd another. I'd love to see a, a robot vacuum cleaner that was a Jaguar. That would be really cool. <laughs> I want one of those dental cases as well, though, because I mean, if people haven't seen them, it's pretty much just a white yeah. Jaguar shell, isn't it? Yeah, I've seen people putting like blue LEDs in and actually, you know, fitting these onto the Jaguars and they look amazing. Oh wow, yeah, d- designed to be wall mounted as well. I think so. Yeah, that'd mm. be cool. <laughs> I mean, talking about the Jaguar today, I mean, I've got some of the new Pro controllers that were made in the last couple of years, and they're still quite inactive. Maybe not as much as like systems like the Dreamcast, but there is still quite a big homebrew community and fans of the Jaguar. It's still quite an active community today, isn't it? Yeah, I, I did pick up some of those uh, Pro controllers as well. Um, it, I think they've actually stopped making them now, so um, I'm quite glad I managed to grab some when I did, because uh, they're really cool, especially for games like Doom that supported them at the time. Um, I think they were worth having for the shoulder buttons and stuff, uh, but yeah, the um, obviously the homebrew scene on the Jag is is quite big now, especially with the flash cart coming out as well. I think that's definitely going to help yeah. um, on that side of things. Uh, a lot of stuff that you see are kind of straight ports from the ST and the Amiga versions, um, obviously using that sixty eight thousand CPU. But um, I think for such a kind of a such a rare well. Not not rare in the grand scheme of things, but considering the Jag wasn't a big seller compared to the likes of the SNES and the Mega Drive and stuff, I think it, it does have a really, really interesting um, and really active homebrew scene. So that's, that's really cool to see. Uh, not something I've played with myself, but um, maybe one day. And I think it might be because there are a lot of retro gaming fans who've maybe explored all of the, the major consoles libraries and then you kind of want to see a bit more what else is out there. And, you know, there probably are people that heard of the Jaguar maybe have never played a game on it before. So I think there's definitely some kind of intrigue there as well. And I imagine, obviously, the kind of stuff you cover on your channel, you do a lot more to kind of explain all this Atari history and uh, and stuff too. I mean, what, what else can we see in your channel? What's coming up then? Have you got any plans for more Atari content soon? Oh, there's always stuff in the pipeline, yeah. Um, I've... Um... I got a bit sidetracked by PCs. Um, I, I really got into IBM PCs over kind of the, the past year or so, and I must admit I've kind of neglected the Atari content. Um, I did a video quite recently on the ST and, and some of the kind of the modern add-ons for that. Um, but there's there's so much stuff here. I mean, I'm sat here looking at it all, thinking, you know, what 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 do I cover next, kind of thing. So I've, I've got an original um, Pong machine. I've got a couple of those that'd be quite nice to cover. Uh, some of their really really early 
um, hardware, like the video pinball and the stunt cycle and that kind of thing. I really want to do uh, sort of the history of those, the uh, the, the sort of pre-2600, uh, 1970s stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, the, the 5200, I think that's a really underrated console that uh, doesn't, doesn't get enough coverage. When I do finally get my hands on all of those Jaguar games, I would really like to do, I don't know if, whether I want to do it as a, some kind of uh, epic documentary-length video or maybe a, a, a live stream or something like that, but it would be really cool to just sort of sit down and go through all of those games um, and just kind of show all of those off as well because I don't think that's the thing that's really been really been done before. I, I was wondering if you had any Lynx content as well, if, if you'd done any, any stuff about the Lynx as well. So we're not I mentioned did. that yet. Yeah, I, I have a Lynx and I collect Lynx stuff. Um, I did a very brief uh, video on it as part of a collaboration thing um, called My Cool Machine um, earlier this year, just talking about the Lynx and, and why I think it's an awesome console. Um, so yeah, I got some um, I got some uh, Mister footage that I captured uh, just to show off some of the games on the Lynx because uh, I think it's another one that's, that's similar to the Jaguar in that um, it had some really interesting and, and unique games on it that uh, perhaps people aren't aware of. Um, so it's it's cool to kind of show those off and share those. And if people want to read, um, you mentioned those Panther documents before as well. What's your website? People want to check that out. Uh, yeah, so that's controlaltreese.com, control-alt-reese, hrws.com. Um, but if you search for Atari Panther, it will be, it was, I think it's the top result now anyway. So uh, there's really not much information out there about it. Amazing. Well, listen, it's incredible that you're doing this documentation of these fantastic systems and, uh, you know, really showing some love to, you know, I could talk about the Atari Jaguar with you all night. Um, you know, one of my all-time favourite consoles. So keep up the good work on the channel and Control Reese on YouTube as well. Obviously, I'll put a link to your website and your YouTube channel in the uh, podcast description. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us, Reese. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun.